The following is a continuation of the previous episode. Welcome to the Yellow Balloons podcast, a collection of teachings to help you navigate the transformational possibilities of a God-centered perspective. We pray these insights from scripture will inspire and encourage you. We have a deception problem. We believe too many lies and trust in too many idols. The only way to overcome deception is by being exposed to the truth, the word and the wisdom of God. In this episode, we talk about how to interact with the world constructively and inspect ourselves often. We do this so that deception doesn't reign in our hearts. In its place, we are called to trust God, to be salt and light in this world. So we put our gear shift over on the wisdom of God and look at that alternative. In verse 17, it's full of mercy. Willing to yield. Yield what? Is James the kind of guy that says, Oh, I don't want to make waves. I'm, I'm, not, going to say, I'm not going to say anything that might offend you. Is, is that what this letter kind of... He's going to say in next... Look down in 4.4. Adulterers and adulteresses. Don't you know friendship with the world's enmity with God? Does that sound like, I don't want to make any waves? <laughs> No, when he says willing to yield, what he's talking about is how can I interact with this person constructively in their best interest? Do they need to hear something now? Or is it better to just wait and listen? Which is it? Because, you know, it's not just one tool in my toolbox. Every problem is not a nail. So how do I meet this person where they are? How do I interact with them in a constructive way? Full of mercy. You know, that thing that Jesus talked about, about the log in your eyes, a fantastic way to think about mercy. Why can you see other people's faults? Which faults drive you crazy? I can tell you about me, the ones that look like me are the ones that really drive me crazy. The faults I don't have don't bother me that much. When somebody looks like me, I want it to stop. Because that is me looking in a mirror, and I don't like to look at myself in the mirror. I want to deceive myself, and that's my natural bent. I've had some friends in the past that were a lot like me, but way more in your face with it. I'm actually pretty good at deceiving people about how bad I am, you know, in in, in my natural state. I mean, I'm actually pretty good at that. So when somebody's like, raw, and they're in your face, I actually kind of like being around that because I'm just like, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so so bad. Uh, help me set that aside. I don't want to be like that. But then parts of it is, I don't need much. I don't need much. Just a little is okay. Okay, I don't, I don't need to immerse myself in that. No, it's yielding to yield, full of mercy and good fruits. Fruit inspection of ourselves is a good thing. But not to see if God loved us or not. Not to see if Jesus' power, when He spoke us into the new creation, was real, because if we don't have good fruits, our faith wasn't good enough to make that real, because at the end of the day, it was us that did it, not Jesus. No. Uh, this, this book doesn't have anything to do with that. We look at the fruits to see which gear was in. Because we're so double-minded and capable of self-rationalization that we can be in the world gear and convince ourselves we're in the God gear. Glad I straightened that person out. They would have gone to hell if I had not set them straight. 
Whatever. You know, it's, it's, this is not easy. It's a team sport. And we can get feedback from people. Was I, was I helpful to that person when I said that? Do they, need to, do they need to hear adulterers and adulteresses? Or do they need to hear, you know, we all love you? What is it today? It depends. God is leading. So, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Oh my gosh, hypocrisy is so easy. It's so much easier to tell you what you need to do than to actually do it. Which brings us back to my least favorite verse in the whole Bible. I have to dwell on it now. I do not want to dwell on it. But I must. 3-1. I'm up here teaching. And I have self-selected to do it. And I'm putting myself in the crosshairs to receive a stricter judgment. So everything I'm telling you set me up to be a hypocrite. Because if I don't do it, I'm going to pay for that. Probably won't have to wait until the judgment seat to do it. Kind of sucks. But there's another thing that he's going to tell us that we'll see soon, which is if you know something's the right thing to do and don't do it, that for you is sin. So I'm kind of stuck. You know, if I don't do what I know I need to do, it's sin. And then when I do it, I'm going to get a Stricter judgment. Pray for me. I need mercy. (laughs) This word stricter is usually translated, unfortunately, greater. So you're going to be held to a higher standard. And this fits with the Sermon on the Mount thing. What measure you measure to others will be measured to you. I think this is just talking about teachers of the Word. In fact, I can tell you that fairly confidently because the word man... You know, if anyone does not stumble in word, he's a perfect man. That's the word male. Remember in the stare in the mirror thing? You know, not not self-examining, not saying, I have the word. It's like a man staring in the mirror. What we're encouraged to do is stare into the perfect law of liberty like a woman looks in the mirror. Not like a man looks in the mirror. So men look in the mirror and like, hmm, good enough. <laughs> and everybody else, if they were participating in that, would go, hmm, no, not really. <laughs> but the woman looks in the mirror and is like, perfection is the only outcome that's acceptable at this, at this time, right? Well, that's what, that's what James wants us to do. Look in the law of liberty like that. Well, this is the same word. If you can bridle your tongue as a teacher then you're a perfect male. Because this is Jewish, this is Jew to Jew. It would never have occurred to them to have a teaching thing be talking to women. But then immediately in verse 8, but no anthropos, human, can tame the tongue. So what are women doing all day long with the children in this culture as the men are out fishing or whatever? They're teaching their children. This is... uh, Uh, Deuteronomy 6, when are you supposed to teach your children? When you rise up, as you walk through the day, when you go down at night. So yeah, of course we're supposed to be teaching. But when somebody stands up and says, here's what the Bible says, I'm opening up the Word to you. If you were a prophet in the Old Testament, prophets didn't just tell the future. Prophets would say, here's what's true and here's what's not true. Like you read something like Amos. You are being unjust right now change from abusing the poor people and stop that and start taking care of the poor. Pretty common thing. And then all the way through the New Testament, if someone is dividing the word of truth, they have a stricter judgment. And, And when you read anything about fruit inspection, like 
judging other people and doing something about it. It's always either about false teacher or about self-examination. You will never find one instance, I don't think, where you're going to say, judge other people to see if they're really going to heaven or not. In fact, you get the opposite of that. Judge nothing before the time, Paul says. In fact, Paul says, I judge myself and I'm not aware of one single thing that I need to change. And that doesn't do me one bit of good when I stand before God. Because he's the one that's going to tell me how I did, not me and not you. So, bug off. Okay? Which is not a bad thing to tell yourself when you're being criticized by other people, right? What of this will help me? Now I'm not under their control anymore. Okay? A lot of times people are criticizing for the reason of putting you under their control. I must make them happy. I must respond to them. I must punish them. I must make this go away. You now, you now put yourself under their control, didn't you? Okay? We don't want to do that. So what, what Jesus says in the, in the Matthew is, what measure you measure others will be measured to you. So this is, this is the thing I got from this. And look, I'm a judgmental person by nature. I am. And I'm better than everybody else, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, so here's the picture I get. And when I saw this, I'm telling you, this was life-changing for me. Because this person can't measure up to me. This person can't measure up to me. And then I got this thing, it's like, Every time you judge someone else and their faults, you're, you're creating a measuring stick for me at the judgment seat that I'm going to use on you. And I appreciate it because, because you know, I was looking for that stick. And, man, yours is really tall. I'm like, why don't you put that stick back and let's get a new one. And I'm just going to be pretty lenient with everybody now, you know, because... They all have concerns. Yeah, they all got. I've got problems. They have problems. You know. Look, we're all kind of in the same boat. So I'll help them when I obligated to. You know, when they're the Samaritan laying in the road with blood coming out, then then I'll help them. Everybody else is kind of. You know, you can deal with them now. So I really, I really flipped a switch when when I saw that. It's like, you know, I would like mercy. Maybe I ought to give some to, to other people, and I think it helped me. I think it helped me a lot because look at verse 5. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. You know what I was doing when I'm, what I do when I compare myself to other people is boast. I don't have to speak it to be thinking it that I'm actually better than you. And you know, interestingly enough, here's something else we do. It's so crazy. We can also do, I'm worse than you and I feel bad. It's the same thing. And what do we usually do when we say, I, I wish I was like them? Well, that is envy. Which is one of the other things that's on the other thing. If I was only beautiful like them. If I was only rich like them. So, verse 13, you know, who's wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. This is receive with meekness the implanted word which gives us the wisdom of God. There's really two reservoirs we can connect into. And one gives us mercy and good fruits and righteousness, which can include telling someone they're an adulterer or adulteress because they're choosing the world. Why would that be helpful to them? Because you're trying to help them get on the right path. When is the right time to say that? You're going to have to figure that out with God. Because sometimes the appropriate thing to do is just hold their hand and give them mercy and yield. We don't know where that person is unless we're listening to the Spirit lead. One is... Earthly, sensual, and demonic. And the other is the power of Jesus' resurrection. Man, that's a pretty amazing kind of hybrid car we got living in us, isn't it? Well, let's look at this set on fire by hell. 
part of this reservoir that's, or this engine that's connected to the world and to demonic power and sensuality that's part of our sin nature. No, we're brethren now, right? Jesus is our Lord, he said in verse 2. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with partiality. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, verse 9, with it, our tongue, we bless our God and Father. These are all Jews. There's no question about whether they're in the family of God or not. So these people like us are in the family of God. We still have this sin nature. And look at all the junk it's connected to. So this is helping us realize that this is not something to be trifled with. You know that drug addiction thinking with, you know, I can do a little and it'll be okay because I can control it. We do the same thing, every one of us, me included, with our sin nature. I can sin a little bit. I, I, I'm just going to feel mad and bitter at this person for a little while. I can turn it off anytime I want to. So we're connected to hell also. So what in the world does that mean? So let's look at that word and this will be uh, our last thing that we do. This word is the word Gehenna. Now, When you see hell in the Bible, it's usually a translation of one of three words, and none of those words are things that are permanent. The thing we usually think of as hell is never called hell, which makes this topic kind of confusing. And I'm going to do I'm going to cover it real briefly. Sheol is the Old Testament word for the place of the dead, and sometimes it refers to a grave or a pit or a chasm. And sometimes it refers to the place your spirit goes after you die. In the New Testament, one of the Old Testament verses with Sheol is translated and the word Hades is used. And Hades is a place like Sheol was sometimes referred to in the Old Testament as a place. When the translators think it's a place, they'll usually put hell. And when they think it's a grave, they'll say grave or pit. But it's always the same thing, Sheol. So in the New Testament, you get Hades, and Hades was a place. I mean, they're in a Greek culture, and the Greeks understood Hades really well. And Hades had two compartments, Tartarus and Elysian fields, which the New Testament calls Abraham's bosom or paradise. And you can see this same picture the Greeks had about Hades when Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus. People on one side, people on the other side, a chasm in between. And it's fascinating that the Bible takes something out of Greek mythology and just ports the concept right in without any uh, commentary. But in Revelation, Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. Lake of fire is never called hell. But it's the thing we usually think of as the permanent thing. And as I've covered in the past, it appears the lake of fire is right there in the new earth and people are walking around in it with people that are in the new earth that are not walking around in it. And I do not know what that means, but I kind of think the lake of fire may be the presence of God himself, which if he came right here right now, we would all just burn up unless he gave us the same kind of supernatural power he gave to the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking around in that fire, which I think is kind of a picture of maybe what this is like. I don't know. But what's clear is this place, Hades, is going to be burned up. And this verse doesn't talk about any of those. Most of the time when you see the word hell, it's referring to Gehenna, which is also a place, but it's not a place that's going to last. In fact, I have been there. I've walked in there and gave a Bible study in Gehenna. Because Gehenna is the valley of the sons of Hinnom. It's still there today in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is kind of like a, a uh, ice cream cone. One side's the Kidron Valley, 
The other side is the Valley of Hinnom. And in the Valley of Hinnom was the downwind low spot. Every city had one. That's where you put the sewage. That's where you put the dead bodies. And because you got sewage and dead bodies down there, you keep it on fire all the time. And there's worms. And there's fire. And in Israel's case, they did something else down there that was really horrible. They sacrificed their children to Moloch in the Valley of Hinnom. It's also called the Valley of Tophet, which means drum beating. Because in the pagan religion, when they went into idolatry, they would beat the drums to cover up the cries of the children as they're sacrificing. So it's a picture, it's a real place, but it's a picture of wickedness, decay, death. And that picture can apply to most anything. It depends on the context. What this is telling us is we've got this sin nature connected to the world, and the world is a picture of the Valley of Hinnom, where you've got child sacrifice, death, decay, worms, because what are the wages of sin? When we connect to that sin nature, what is the consequence of sin? What is the outcome of sin? Well, if, you're, if we're going to do addictive substances, what's the outcome going to be? It's going to be some form of death, right? It may be the death of our relationships. It may be the death of our ability to even, you know, think right. And it may be physical death. But there's some kind of death that's going to come. If we're going to be bitter and we're going to be divisive with other people, we're going to have death of relationships. And so we're going to live a life of Gehenna. And it's kind of unfortunate that they put hell in here because we tend to think, oh, well, that doesn't apply to us. But Gehenna is a place anybody can go. And anybody can, you can go there anytime you want to. You do not have to, in this sense, you do not have to wait until you die to go see what hell's like. All you have to do is put your gear into sensual, demonic, self-seeking, envious, boasting, all of which we know how to do very well. And you get death, destruction, carcasses, devastation, injuring other people. But we have the resurrection power of Jesus. We have a new creation. We've got to just put it in that gear. And when we do, what we get is seeking the best for others. We're thinking about the best of others. We put that gear in and say, I'm going to seek the best for others. And now what we're doing is we're leaning into the wisdom of God. And we're walking in faith. We're putting our belief of what Jesus told us to do, to love others, into action. And the result is that we win. We don't get Valley of Hinnom. We get fellow heir with Christ. We get crowns of righteousness. And we get the road of blessing. One of which might be the trial of persecution from the world. Which James started this whole thing off with saying, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. See, it all fits together. The, the thing that's happening in our political environment is that self-seeking is now spilling out where we can all see it. What's the, what's the answer to that? You know, what we're called to be is salt and light. What happens if you put too much salt on food? Better or worse? Okay. How much do you need? Just a little. Okay. How much light do you need to make a difference in a dark room? Just a little. Yeah, just a little. Okay. The Bible never calls us to be a majority. It never even presumes that there's going to be a majority. It calls us remnant. 
And what, what we're always called to do in a dark world, look, the world's always going to be dark. So that's one of the things we get from this. The world is a selfish, destructive place. Always will be. We will not redeem the world. God's going to do that later. What we can do is preserve the world. And we do that when we're salt. But what's my job to do? My job is to engage in that constructively without being bitter or making it personal. That is a challenge, let me tell you. I like the idea of winning at life to get believers to engage constructively in their neighborhoods and be salt and light. That's all we can do. God will take care of the political outcome. He appoints authorities. Thanks, God, for your grace and for giving us mercy. I pray that we'll give it to others even as we stand for the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Yellow Balloons podcast. If you want more information on adopting a God-centered perspective, visit our website at yellowballoons.net. And if you have any questions related to what you just heard, we would love to hear from you. Please email us at contact at yellowballoons.net. Thanks for listening.